Greetings to the brightest audience in the country. I'm Nicole McBurney. Before we get to today's Theology Thursday, I do want to remind you that January is Telethon Month. We're on our second week and we have raised $5,500, just over a fifth of the way to our $25,000 goal. So if you can help us out, please go to kgov.com after the show and click on that Telethon banner at the top of the screen. And with that out of the way, here's today's Theology Thursday. We have reached the final chapter of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. So if we love God who has begotten not only his only son, Jesus Christ, eternally begotten of the Father, but also then all those human beings who were made in his image and likeness, and then those who have been born again to become part of Christ's body in our day and age, then if we love him who begot, we'll also love those who are begotten of him. So we should love also the children of God, not only God. Now, this word begot, you know, in the Bible, we hear so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so, and he died, and he died, and he died. And this gives us a history of the world. So the Bible, of all the books of antiquity, the Bible is the book that purports to give us an actual history of the world from its creation through to modern historical times, meaning not only the time of Abraham and the patriarchs, but then of Israel's early kingdom in Palestine, and then leading to the period of the latter prophets, and then right up to the time of John the Baptist and Jesus and the apostles into the first century. So the Bible claims to be the word of God and to give us the accurate history of mankind. Now, what is so great about that is because it makes so many specific historical claims, those claims could be challenged and they could be shown to be verifiable. I'd like to give you two examples, one with Eve and another with not Adam, but Noah. In the refereed scientific journal called Science, Science Magazine, there is a professional science journalist whose expertise is evolution. Now, I don't know quite how that could be. It'd be like having an expertise in aliens. But that's her claimed expertise, evolution, and her name is Ann Gibbons. And she published in Science Magazine that when we look at mutation rates from DNA that we get only from our mother, only from mom, when we look at just that DNA and we see that when we have children, there are sometimes mutations. And those mutations mean that our children have DNA that's not quite the same as ours. There's supposed to be variability, but sometimes things go wrong and there's mutation. If it's severe enough, it could be lethal, the child could die. If it's not that severe, it could cause a serious congenital defect, disease, or it could be basically unnoticeable. Well, scientists try to measure the rate of mutation. 
How many changes from our parents to us, from us to our grandkids? And if they could determine the rate of change in our DNA, then they could calculate backwards. See how much diversity is there in the whole human genome, and then how far back would Adam and Eve have been? Well, what's astounding is they've come up with actual dates for Adam and Eve, and they're not millions of years old, they're thousands, but there's a difference. Eve, according to this method of dating back in history, Eve is 2,000 years older than Adam. Now, why would that be? Eve is called by these scientists mitochondrial Eve, and Adam is called Y-chromosomal Adam. Now, that's because we get part of our DNA from our mothers only. That's the mitochondrial DNA. If you could picture the ovum and the sperm fertilizes the ovum, well, the sperm within it has 23 chromosomes. The ovum has 23 chromosomes. And they come together, and of course, they merge in a dance of life. They intertwine and form the 46 chromosomes of the baby. But not all of our DNA is in the nucleus. Some of it is outside of the nucleus in the cell. And that's our mitochondrial DNA that makes the powerhouse, the, the energy resource, for our cells. So that DNA that's outside of the nucleus, not part of the 46 chromosomes, that you only get from the mother. You only get that from your mom because that was in the cell, in the ovum, but it didn't become part of the 46. So we call it mitochondrial DNA, and you only get it from your mom. So they looked at all the mitochondrial DNA from all the subjects they tested all around the world. And they said, if we calculate backwards to account for the differences in mitochondrial DNA, we calculate that Eve would have lived 6,000 years ago. And that was astounding when Science Magazine published that because that is consistent with the chronology of the Bible. Now, they can't let that stand. They hate that. So they say, well, we know it couldn't have been 6,000 years ago, of course. So then they complicate the calculation, and they say, let's include chimp DNA with human DNA. Let's do that, and when we do that, we think that Eve lived 200,000 years ago. Well, forget the chimp DNA, because that's assuming their conclusion that we've evolved from chimps. The neat thing is that they've dated Eve to have lived about 6,000 years ago. Well, then why do they say Adam lived only 4,000 years ago? Why would that be? Why is he younger? And they call him Y-chromosomal Adam. Well, women have what we call an X-chromosome, and a man has a Y-chromosome. And when they look in the whole world at the Y chromosomes of all the men in the world, they haven't looked at all six billion of us, but they take subjects and they sequence their DNA and they look at their Y chromosome and they see that it is amazingly consistent, even more consistent than mitochondrial DNA. 
How could it be that the whole world shows evidence of every man in the world sharing the same Y chromosome with only almost no variation? Just enough variation to account for 4,000 years of having children, that's it. Well, the reason is because of Noah's flood. The global flood was a genetic bottleneck. And there was, in fact, four women on the ark, each one having their own mitochondrial DNA. But how many Y chromosomes were on the ark? How many? Really, there was only one. Because Noah's three sons each inherited their dad's Y chromosome. So Noah's Y chromosome, when we tried to measure back, we could only get as far as Noah. That's it. And so Noah lived a couple thousand years after Adam and Eve. And so when the atheist and evolutionist look at our DNA and they say, you know, we were all begotten by parents who go back just 6,000 years for Eve and only 4,000 years for Adam, they are confirming the particular chronology that's in the Bible and the genetic bottleneck that we read in the first chapters of Genesis with the global flood and all of mankind dying out except for those on the ark. So when the Bible talks about God begetting us and then we go through and we see the table of nations in Genesis and we hear the story of our history of the human race of the genetic bottleneck on the ark, it is so thrilling to realize that the Bible is God's word and we can trust it. And so when the Bible then tells us other things, such as we are made in his image and his likeness, we can trust it. We can trust God's word. And so when God says to love one another, well, this is not just a holy book written by some monk in Tibet. This is God's word. And so he expects us to love one another the way we would love him. And verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So, of course, John, as we've said, is part of Israel's covenant of circumcision. For us, we keep the righteous requirement of the law, but we don't keep the law itself. What is the righteous requirement of the law? It is love. Love God and love your neighbor. And if you do these things, you've effectively kept the whole law. And so Paul writes to us that we do fulfill the righteous requirement of the law when we live for God. But John is writing to those who are actually under the Mosaic law and under the covenant of circumcision. So he says to them that we know that we love others and especially the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So the law, if you think about government law, those who keep the law, and I'm talking about good laws, 
like do not kidnap, don't commit perjury, don't steal, don't murder. Those who keep those laws can have a good life, at least outwardly. Of course, we need to be born again to have a truly good life. But outwardly, those who break the laws bear a burden that is very difficult and eventually will destroy you. In Massachusetts, the earliest law book that they had in Massachusetts was called the Massachusetts Body of Liberties. Why would they call them liberties? Doesn't the law restrict you? Well, you are free if, in fact, you're able to live with your neighbor and not harm your neighbor, and your neighbor doesn't harm you, then you're free to prosper and to enjoy your family and your life. So God's commandments are not burdensome. Verse 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The world is a pretty big thing from our perspective, but from God, it's not a big thing at all. God has to humble himself to look upon the universe. So just imagine earth, just the speck that it is to God. And yet we think of, say, the White House or some uh, fear we have of Islam becoming such a force in the world. And these things to us, well, they have a lot of power. But to God, they do not, for he already has the victory over them. So what is it that will overcome the world? Our faith. Does that mean if we believe hard enough, we could believe and believe and we could believe a problem away? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It is the object of our faith. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ, and he has the victory over the world. So the name it and claim it televangelist who say it's your words, your words have power, and your faith has power, that's not exactly right. It's not even my faith that saves me, so to speak, because no matter what I believe, that can't save me and give me eternal life. It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it, especially in the Greek. So I have faith in Christ, and it's his faithfulness then that saves me. Because by my mere uh, determination, I can't do it. But God has said, if you trust in me, if you have faith in me, I will save you. So our faith overcomes the world. Ultimately, that means God does. Verse 5, Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so, as we've mentioned already, John was addressing particular false teachings that had crept early on into the fellowship of believers. Now today, the body of Christ on earth is somewhat mature, and I just say that in a chronological sense. It's been growing for a long time. And just as was true with Israel during the time of Christ's ministry, it is also true of the body of Christ that wheat and tares are together, and they're growing together, and they will be separated by Christ, 
at a judgment, but right now within the body of Christ, within local churches and denominations, there are many unbelievers, and many of them are in positions of authority. They're pastors and bishops, and they sit on church councils, and they run denominations, and they're in utter rebellion against God. Some of them are even atheists. Many are homosexual. Many are pro-abortion, for example. Many believe in evolution and Darwinism and the Big Bang. Yet many, many of those who are openly post-Christian and in rebellion against God regarding morality, many of them give lip service to the Christian creed, say to the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And I don't think it means that they believe these things, but they will assent to them partly because maybe their retirement benefits depend on it because their retirement is being funded by their denomination. So that if they come right out and say, I'm not a Christian anymore, I'm a Buddhist, well then maybe in some rare case they'd get booted. But quite often, that would really be acceptable. Like in Denver, we have Iliff School of Theology, which is a United Methodist School of Theology. I was on the campus a while back having lunch with some of the faculty, and one faculty member said, well, I'm a Hindu, and I teach here. So I said, so you don't have to be a Christian, right, to teach at United Methodist School of Theology? Oh, no, I'm a Hindu. They don't care if you're a Christian. And I knew that, but just wanted to hear it firsthand. So today, just because someone says, well, we believe Jesus is the Son of God, that's not telling you too much because of the chronological development of the church and the fact that it's been infiltrated by the devil. So, of course, if you are a believer, then you will affirm that Jesus Christ is God the Son come in the flesh through the incarnation. Now, the next verse, 6, refers to Jesus' earthly ministry, which began with the baptism of John and with, if you recall, the descending of the Holy Spirit upon him when he was baptized. And then it concluded, his earthly ministry concluded when he was baptized with blood, his own in the crucifixion. So let's read this. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. And so Jesus, if you recall, in fact, I'd like to quote from John chapter 1. Remember, we're reading an epistle of John, and this is the same author who God inspired to write the fourth gospel. And in that work, in chapter 1, verse 29, we read that John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit, 
descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon Jesus. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So here now, this is years later, when John first became an apostle, a disciple of Jesus, and then learned of this account, and then is recording this in his first epistle. And so Jesus came by water, John's baptism, and blood. Remember that in the Gospel of Matthew, we have the account of the sons of Zebedee, and they wanted to rule with Jesus. And so Jesus said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am about to be baptized with? And of course, the Lord was referring to his death and the shedding of his blood. So the water and the blood and the spirit, these were symbols of Christ's earthly ministry. Now, the next two verses, and we're preparing for those verses, these next two verses were actually one verse. And what we're about to consider is something that a lot of Christians are uncomfortable with. This was one verse in the Bible and in this epistle when John wrote it. I'm not saying that John divided it up with chapters and numbers, some books of the Bible were divided up originally into chapters, but certainly John, his epistles were not. But this was one verse, that is one sentence, that has been changed and turned into two sentences. Now how do we know this? Well, the early Christian writers who wrote about God and the nature of God, Christ, his deity, the Trinity, they did not quote these verses the way they are. And then we look at the earliest manuscripts, and they don't have these verses the way they are. So I'll let you know which part of this was very evidently added by a scribe at a later date, and how that most likely came to be. Now, scribes would write in the margins of their scrolls, if they were working on a scroll, they would write in the margins. The Hebrew scribes who copied the Old Testament for us through many centuries would write, notes in the narrow vertical margins, and then the wider top and bottom margins. And this is called the Masora. The greater Masora is, are the notes at the top and the bottom, and the lesser Masora are the notes in the narrow vertical margins. And those scribes are called the Masorites. 
And so we learn a lot about the text of the Bible, the grammar, some history, some ancient ideas about theology when we read the notes. But there is a danger that the notes could end up in the text. And that happens at times. And in the study of ancient manuscripts, that could be called a gloss entering the actual text. Now, a gloss is just what we've been describing. A scribe would insert a comment to help the reader understand what he's reading in the margin. If you take a whole series of these glosses and you put them all together, today we call that a glossary. So a glossary is appended to the end of a work, and it will have a whole series, usually in alphabetical order, of particulars from the text that the reader might not understand. Well, the next two verses would be very relevant to early Christians because of the realization that Jesus was God, and so you could imagine how early teachers and scribes would write notes in the margin where they would point out and make it clear in their own minds that this is saying Jesus is part of the Trinity. Well, let's read these verses, 7 and 8. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Okay, the second half of verse 7 and the first part of verse 8 are not in the original manuscripts, and they're not quoted by the early Christian writers. So I'll read it the way John wrote it. Of course, John wrote in Greek but in our English translation. For there are three that bear witness. Then you jump to verse 8. On earth. The spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. For this is a testimony from Christ's earthly ministry, and the Gospels give us the account that Christ and his ministry was affirmed by his baptism and by the Holy Spirit and by his crucifixion. And so these are the testimony that agree that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, you could imagine, it's easy to, that a scribe coming to this point would think, well, those are not the only three that bear witness because this reminds us of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I'll put that in the margin. And a scribe puts that in the margin, and a couple centuries later, as the Bible was transmitted by writing, handwritten manuscripts, if we begin all the way back with Job, this process went on for thousands of years until the advent of the printing press, then a scribe takes this gloss, and whether he does it intentionally or because he's tired, and it goes right in the text. And it's in the text. And then his copy 
of the New Testament that he creates is used and copied by others, and pretty soon there is a family of manuscripts that have that verse in it. And we could imagine when there were some rejecting the deity of Jesus Christ, that some Christians who wanted to take the easy way out would say, well, look right here. Here's a perfect verse for the Trinity. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. That's it. That's what it says. And so in this way, we water down the Word of God, thinking that we're helping Hey, this is Nicole McBurney jumping into the broadcast. We are out of time for this week, so be sure to come back next Thursday to hear the rest of this study. And don't forget to head over to kgov.com to help us with our telethon goal. You may have noticed that last year we did not have a telethon, and that's because we have such great supporters like you. But this year we want to up our game, so we've set a goal of $25,000, and if you can help us out, please go over to kgov.com and hit that telethon banner. We really appreciate all of your support, and hey, may God bless you guys.